Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 19 for July of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the value of short-form series along with some of our favorite examples, and our show topics this month include The Mist on Spike TV, a Stephen King adaptation that's only aired a few episodes at this point, and Killjoys on Sci-Fi, which just began its third season. And our interview this month will be with Graham McTavish, who's got double genre cred as he goes through Preacher at the moment, and that's what we are mostly going to be talking to him about. But also people might know him from Outlander, which has its third season coming in September. So it's great to talk to such a distinguished actor for our interview segment today. Yeah, and Preacher turns out to be, yet again, one of these shows that I am mystified that my wife loves it, but she does. <laughs> yeah. are you? Have you seen any of season two of Preacher yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're just one behind. Oh, really? See, I have to catch up to you guys. But yeah, I was very excited to talk to him about his character because he's so prominent in season two compared to season one. So that's something to look forward to for you guys. And before we get into the spoiler time codes... I do want to point out that our two show topics, The Mist and Killjoys, are going to be spoilery for the episodes that have aired so far. But since they haven't aired very many, it's really just going to be a teaser unless you haven't watched season one and two of Killjoys, which you should have. So before we get into our topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Short form series. 221. The Mist. 2111 Killjoys 3655 Preacher Interview 5122 All right, well, let's go ahead and get into our discussion topic here. And this one's not spoilery, but of course, but it is something that maybe the listeners will recognize some of the things we're going to be talking about and maybe not even be aware of others because short form sci fi series that appear online are not something that we certainly have talked about on this podcast before, but maybe aren't even in the public eye in general. Yeah, and it's probably not fair to say these are the wave of the future because they most certainly are not in terms of taking over the 42-minute TV episode. That said, I think they have a place. They certainly do, and I think there was a time where they were probably more prominent when networks were really trying to explore second screen content with webisodes and things like that. But these aren't that kind of thing. Webisodes for a larger series. These are actually full blown shows that just happen to be shorter for each episode, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we have to wonder what's the viability of these? How accessible are they to people? 
how easy are they to consume and how do the networks make their money back? I mean, all kinds of different viability options here, but there certainly are ones that we've enjoyed just as much as long form shows. So Dave has three and I have three. What are you going to start off with here, Dave? Well, I'm going to start off with Hulu's con men. And, and, you know, you mentioned how do they make money off this? Well, obviously Hulu is a subscription service, so you have to pay to see con men. But this came out in 2015, and it might be as close to a reunion as brown coats are likely to get, because <laughs> this is the brainchild of Alan Tudyk, who Firefly fans know as Hoban Washburn, mm-hmm. Wash, and Nathan Fillion, who they know as Captain Malcolm Reynolds. And it follows the spaceship's pilot of a one-and-done television series called Spectrum, as he navigates the science fiction convention circuit. Now, that might sound a tad familiar, do you think? Yeah, it might very much reflect the experiences of Alan Tudyk in real life. <laughs> so there's certainly a light touch to it, and it is hilarious. It is telling. You know what? It might be a little too soon for some Browncoat fans to even watch it. It always will be too soon. (laughs) Well, good point. Good point. But name a science fiction actor he or she has been on it. So we've got recurring appearances by Casper Van Dien, Felicia Day, Henry Rollins, Amy Acker, Trisha Helfer, Sean Astin, which is one of my particular favorites, you know, when he and Alan Tudor are at the bar. Because <laughs> he's playing himself, yeah. Exactly. And the girls keep coming up to him because of his Lord of the Rings character. <laughs> but then from Firefly, Sean Mayer, Jewel State, Summer Glau, Gina Torres all make appearances, as well as Will Wheaton, who I've said many times, I, I love him now. I hated him on Star Trek. Laura <laughs> Vandervoort, who we had an opportunity to in- interview at one point. Yep. Yeah, that's a great reason to tune in just for the guest spots, because it's just kind of fun to see them either playing themselves or playing some fan or someone who interacts with Alan Tudyk's character. Yeah, and the master of cameos himself, Stan Lee, even makes an appearance, as does Joss Whedon at one point. So we're just missing Marina Baccarin and Adam Baldwin. (laughs) Ron Glass, of course, died in 2016. But season one aired 13 episodes. Season two has 12 episodes. And as I said, it's not science fiction. What it is, it follows members of the science fiction shows as they're doing the con circuit. And and like I said, it's hilarious. The episodes are all short. Check it out, especially if you have Hulu. Oh, yeah. And is it ongoing? Is there going to be a season three? Do we know? I don't know yet. That would be great because I... uh... I think I'm all caught up with that. I have been for a while. So that's definitely a good one that I think probably our listeners may have heard of that one. And if you're a listener of our other podcasts, maybe going way back to the Continuum podcast, you may have heard of H plus, which aired in 2012 on YouTube. It was a Brian Singer produced show. And I mean, he, he's always been a pretty big producer, but to be doing something so small was quite surprising. And we were all very excited for H plus. It was a transhumanist science fiction where people go beyond themselves, in this case, through the use of technology. Everyone has this implant, and then the implants that pretty much everyone has falls victim to a virus. And so all the people, of course, fall into comas as well. And those who don't have the chip are the only ones left. And so an apocalypse ensues. But what's interesting about this is that it was written by John Cabrera, and who teamed up with Brian Singer 
And now Brian Singer and, and John Cabrera are teaming up again for a new science fiction. I don't know if it's a short, but I think it might be. It's called August One, a futuristic thriller set in a world in which the Roman Empire never collapsed. And so all the prejudices and slavery that existed in the Roman Empire are still around in our modern age because of it. So that's a show to look forward to if you enjoyed H+. H+, had its flaws, certainly. I think in some cases we were like, are these episodes maybe a little bit too short? But it definitely was a format that intrigued us at the time and continues, obviously, to this day. Right. Now, I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because that's my main concern with H+, is that some of the episodes were three minutes, maybe even a little bit less, which isn't really enough yeah. to sink your teeth into. And, and most of the shows we're talking about, the episodes are anywhere from six to 11 minutes. And, and you know, most of them actually hit around the eight minute mark. Right. That's ideal. But it's still worth checking out. Yes. All right. Now, the second one I'm going to talk about is called Project Sarah, S-E-R-A. And this one you can find on YouTube, but it's part of the IGN Start program. But we've got six episodes of seven to nine minutes each. And I sat down last night. I really intended to just watch the first two or so to get a feel for the show. 45 minutes later, I'd seen all six. <laughs> yeah. Really captivating. Stars Julia Voth and Victor Webster, who we know from our continuum days. That's cool. Yeah. But the basic premise revolves around this biological weapon, which ostensibly was being developed to help wounded soldiers recover and return to the battlefield more quickly. But as we see in so many sci-fi genre tales, you know, somebody else gets hold of the science and now it's being used to destabilize an entire population. Well, so hold on. It's, so it wasn't a weapon at first. At first. But then they started using it as a weapon. Right. And, and cool. what we see is it, it's certainly got super soldier characteristics to it, although these super soldiers, if you will, actually turn into flesh-eating zombies. I don't know. I mean, I guess they're not dead, so they're technically not zombies. But it follows Jillian Ames played by Julia Voth, who's the daughter of General Ames, who was one of the movers and shakers on this project. But turns out somebody's after her. She knows too much about the truth of the program. She ends up partnering with a Lieutenant Riggins, played by Derek Theller, who turns out to be one of her father's men and, and has a, a deep connection, served three tours under him. And the two of them go on the road to bring down this program that's gone awry. Lots of action, lots of gunplay, lots of graphic violence. If you like headshots, you're going to love Project Sarah. <laughs> now, what's Victor Webster doing it? Victor Webster. Well, I don't want to give away too much because that would be a spoiler. Oh, okay. So let me just leave it at that. Now, he's not a principal. I think he appears in three of the six, maybe four well, when there's only six, that's good enough. <laughs> right, right. But we definitely get to see him. It's really worth checking out. I mean, it's really like watching one episode and the ending, you know, you get to episode six and you're wondering, okay, how are they going to tie this up? I was satisfied. Now, what I did learn is that this project is essentially dead, that funding's not coming through, the, the participants have moved on to other projects. Sometime down the road, maybe we'll see a revival, but but for now, we're just going to have to go with what we've got. But I think what it does is it shows what can be done with these seven to nine minute episodes. 
Right. And I think one of the things that really works well for this short form is trying things out to see if they work in larger form. And in fact, the next one I'm going to talk about is exactly that. It's a pilot. Blood and Chrome, which I'm sure people who are Battlestar Galactica fans have watched maybe more than once. <laughs> it aired on YouTube as part of the Machinima Network. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it was a web series that was specifically aired to gauge audience reaction to see if it would work as a series. And in fact, the web series taken as a whole, when pulled together into one larger episode, was aired as a movie of sorts, uh, a one-time movie on the Sci-Fi Network. So it wasn't just on YouTube. It just was aired that way. And they were, again, 10 episodes, quite short. I think this was probably the longer of the ones we're talking about today, because I think some of them approached 11 or 12 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a Battlestar Galactica prequel featuring a young Adama who's just being assigned to the Galactica as a pilot in between the time of Caprica and Battlestar Galactica. So it was a nice little in-between show, similar to the kinds of things that they're now doing with the Star Wars extended universe in the movies as well. So obviously that formula is something that has since played out. And I think, I feel like it should have worked back in 2012. It had first aired in November of 2012 and then sci-fi aired it as a movie in February of 2013 and then decided not to pick it up. And I'm not sure what the flaws were for it. I thought it was really cool the way they introduced the possibilities of the human style of Cylons or the precursor to that and the development of it. And it starred Ben Cotton, who we talked about back when we were talking about Nat Geo's Mars. And he's always great in these types of military, space military roles. So, you know, I felt like it had a lot going for it, but it didn't get picked up. Yeah, I wonder if the expectations were just too high and that, you know, if they looked at it today, maybe it's something that would end up getting into production for a full season. Yeah, I think it probably, unfortunately, because it came after Caprica and because Caprica failed, I think it didn't gain as much traction because of the order in which it was aired. Maybe if it had come before Caprica, it would have gained more traction, but such as it is, it's still enjoyable. It's a one-off, so it's 10 episodes that you can enjoy out there on the web. All right. Well, my third show is one that I think a lot of people are going to overlook it because they're going to read the premise. It's like, well, this sounds dumb. <laughs> Miss 2059. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know, Mike and I've been singing the praises of Verizon Go 90, that free streaming service that actually initially we thought it was just going to be for uh, mobile devices, but it turns out you can access it on your laptop as well. But Miss 2059 grew out of a short film by the show's lead, Anna Akana, who is a YouTube star in her own right. And it follows a beauty queen who's accidentally sent into space as the Earth's representative, basically at what turns out to be an intergalactic version of the Hunger Games. <laughs> that sounds like a premise. <laughs> if she loses, Earth is destroyed. Now, she's been living in her astronaut sister's shadow and now that she's gone in her sister's place, the sisters have to learn to work together since they hold the fate of the planet in their hands. And it does start out a bit silly, but there are just some really clever lines and the acting, the production values are fine. I, I certainly didn't 
feel as if I was watching something cheesy. To a certain extent, if you liked Farscape, I think you would certainly make a connection here. There are 10 episodes, 5 to 11 minutes each. I believe it's already coming back for a season two, but it's just really a fun show, and it is science fiction. It is a good story, and the silliness wears off a little bit. There are some funny scenes, but you know, for the most part, it's about the people. And as we've said dozens of times, any of these shows, if you don't care about the people, if they're not placed in situations of some peril, then we don't really care. And that's not the case here. Well, that sounds really cool. And I did catch the trailer for Miss 2059. So I did understand the premise there, but it does sound strange. And I think there's one thing I noticed as we're talking about these, Dave, and that is that there's a threshold between a YouTube web series that's just being produced by someone like Anna Akena, who maybe produced some things on her own in YouTube on her own channel. But these are ones that have been picked up by studios. When you say it's a little bit more higher threshold in terms of not just being some sci-fi story that someone came up with and put on YouTube on their own. Well, yeah, and and you'd wonder with her, because I certainly went and ended up watching probably a dozen or so of her pre-Miss 2059 videos, and she talks about all sorts of things, and she's got personality, she's attractive, and she's funny, she's witty. So, you know, is she just one of these, these new artists that's going to get her hand in everything and hopefully get some sort of a deal somewhere down the road. So I I don't know whether she's a sci-fi fan or this just seemed like a good idea, something she was working on to get her foot in the door. Don't know, but still worth checking out. The reason I get, I asked that, I guess, is because one of the shows I was going to put on my list was one from the creators of dimension 404, which we talked about on this podcast, which was a Hulu anthology series that brought a production company from the YouTube world. And the reason I didn't use Video Game High School, which was the one I was going to talk about, Video Game High School from Des Dolly, is because it was only on YouTube and it was only being produced by them. So it's, it seems to be like even something as obscure or startup as Go90 is, that's where it becomes sort of like a short form <laughs> series that's more mainstream. And that's why uh, the choice that I didn't end up making is a little bit unorthodox. Quantum Break aired on Xbox One streaming in conjunction with a video game called Quantum Break. Now, it got my attention, I think through a listener of ours pointed it out to me because it contained time travel. And this listener knew I loved time travel, so he said I should watch it. Not to mention, it features Sean Ashmore, who, you know, we're going to be talking about Killjoys later on, and Aaron Ashmore, his brother, is the star in that show. And Sean Ashmore... Uh, is alongside, you know, some other main characters, but Lance Reddick is one of the somewhat main characters in there as well. And we've talked to him on this podcast as well. So I felt like it was a nice tie in and quantum break is this transmedia is what they call it. Action shooter, video game and television hybrid where actually the content of the show is reflected in the video game and vice versa, but they don't have full overlap. So it's not like a bunch of cutscenes from the video game of which there are many, but the show itself is completely separate and can be enjoyed in its own right. There are four episodes. They aired in April of 2016. 
And the plot was supposed to sort of change what happened in the game. And the time travel basically had to do with finding these little junctions, these places where you could make choices, almost like a choose your own adventure type of story. And whatever choice you made changed what happened in that timeline. So you were able to change the outcome in a time travel way. And the show, of course, didn't do that because, of course, the show aired as it was. But in the video game, you made choices. But the show itself also dropped quite a few visual clues that you could use in the gameplay. So if you watched closely for these four episodes, you actually might gain some insight that would help you uh, beat the game or get to the next level or whatever. So it was confusing on purpose, according to an article I read in terms of the time travel, because it wanted to encourage replayability of the video game. So to figure things out, people would want to go down different paths and see what happens on those other paths. Cause you know how, especially with continuum or any other time travel show, you really do have to watch it more than once. And for a video game company, that's gold. Replayability is, is definitely a commodity. So if you like video games and if you like time travel, check out quantum break, all the episodes are now available pretty much on YouTube or anywhere else that you would find this sort of thing. It originally aired on Xbox one streaming. All right. Sounds cool. Time travel. You got me. <laughs> exactly. You had me at time travel. So yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed that topic and, and, and I'll certainly put some links to where you can find them in the show notes at denofgeek.com. But let's go ahead and get into our show topics, Dave, because we have a couple of interesting shows to talk about. Killjoys has probably been on our radar for a long time and it's surprising that it took us this long to get to. We just had other shows to talk about, but we have a new show to talk about and it's going to be a very different kind of discussion for the mist on spike TV. This is a Stephen King adaptation and two episodes have aired so far as we're recording this. I believe the third episode is about to air and it's based on a Stephen King novella of the same name, the mist published in 1980. And the story follows a small town as it copes with an unexplained and mysterious mist that envelops the town preventing the residents from seeing what appear to be monsters hidden within, but you can't tell whether or not it's all in their minds or whether it's con concrete problem. There's also an undercurrent of a military experiment gone wrong type of thing that we're not sure what's going on, but it debuted on Thursday, June 22nd. It's going to run for 10 episodes. And this is taking us down a very familiar path and that's both good and bad. Because, Dave, I think the specter of Under the Dome is looming in the distance for this one. <laughs> well, yeah, and let me back up for a second, because I'm sure some of the listeners are out there going, Spike TV? What the <laughs> heck is Spike TV? <laughs> you know, I have it on my cable system. I, I have Direct TV. So I, Spike TV is sort of like Guy TV, but apparently they are going to be changing over and, and you know, we'll maybe talk about that at the end of the show if we have time. But right now, this first episode did really well. The live plus three numbers were 1.3 million viewers with a 0. 0.6 in the 18 to 49 group. So, you know, out of the shoot, it's doing really well. But if you don't have Spike TV, you might have trouble tracking this down. So I don't know how prevalent it is. I don't know if Comcast has it on there, but. Well, Spike TV, I would think 
it would not be a go-to channel for people who watch shows like this on the sci-fi channel. If you got those kind of numbers, you'd be sitting pretty. Yes. So for Spike to get that straight out of the gate is pretty impressive. But I guess what I'm saying though, and, and of course under the dome did air on a main network is that I see some very recognizable Stephen King elements that we've started to recognize and enjoy because we recognize them. But don't you think there's also some danger in terms of the storytelling being a little bit stale and, and predictable. I mean, fortunately it hasn't been, but especially that pilot episode, I would encourage people to keep with it even through that pilot episode, which is very expository setting up the characters and the characters are kind of cookie cutter. Well, I think the thing is it's almost like it's unique to Stephen King. I mean, here's one of the most prolific, one of the most popular, one of the wealthiest writers out there and yet when his material is brought to television, I don't know, there's like something that doesn't quite transfer the way you would hope that it would. I mean, The Shining, I thought was certainly an outstanding movie. But when you look at the series, The Stand, I don't know if you watch that. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of miniseries that did quite well right. back in the 80s and 90s. So Right. And it was good. It you know, it was okay. <laughs> you mentioned under the dome and I just don't know what it is. Is it that we, we know these are tropes. We know these are Stephen King tropes. We're fine with them when we read the books, but are we fine with them when we watch them on television? And that's the question. Cause I want to leave that question unanswered and let the listeners determine that for themselves, because I think it does have value because of its familiarity as a Stephen King trope. So I just think that the fact that they hit the ground running with the end of episode one, after they introduced all the cookie cutter characters and episode two just dives right in. In fact, in some cases dives right in a little bit too soon, as we'll talk about, because they skipped over some reactions to this mist and went straight for the uh, apocalyptic start looting the grocery stores and things like that almost immediately. But the pilot episode does make it clear that a series of unnatural occurrences have preceded some sort of encroaching evil. So it's not just seen as a fog for very long. It immediately is noticed that people are dying and in horrific ways that in some cases have to do with either some evil that's in them or some fear that they have. There's even some biblical significance in some cases that really seems to play on the prejudices and the, you know, well, Stephen King, small town America and wanting to keep things simple. And any, anybody that's different is someone who to be feared. Right. And, you know, at the center of everything that's going on is a rape of a high school girl, allegedly at the hands of the football team's quarterback. And, you know, you again, you mentioned the small town setting and, and, and of course, everybody's taking sides now. But before they can really get a handle on what's going on there, the mist rolls in. So everything is kind of trying to find its footing, which, again, really makes for a nice psychological drama right right out of the shoot. Well, I think it's great that they did that from one standpoint, because they did start to get a little exposition heavy at first and all the reactions were like, Oh, of course the father is very permissive. The mother is very strict. She doesn't like the fact that 
the father who's played by Morgan Spector, uh, Kevin Copeland is his character's name. And Alyssa Sutherland plays Eve Copeland. She's recognizable to Vikings fans, very tall and (laughs) Nordic looking herself, very unique lead actress. And she herself has some history with the town and people perceive her as someone who maybe had a loose history. So when her daughter is raped, it's almost seemed like, Oh, like daughter, like mother, she must've invited it somehow. And of course to go right along with that, Eve Copeland is a teacher who teaches sex ed. And a lot of the conservative townsfolk don't want her speaking about sex to their impressionable young men. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that gets explored early on are, are the interpersonal relationships between mother and daughter. And as you said, the, the incident that gets Eve fired in the first place, the father that won't talk to his son while the boy wears makeup. Right. And, and then, of course, the alleged rape that transpires, because that's a pretty big part of this episode because the girl and the boy are, are thrown together. You know, when we get to the second episode and we've basically got two groups, which is, which is something that I really like the way they handle that. Yeah. That, that was one problem I had is that I really liked the groups, the dynamic that they had when it was basically the father of the raped child, the makeup wearing boy and the two prisoners that were in, prison who were very different from each other. It really created a really cool dynamic, but at the same time they started to act like people in a zombie apocalypse way too quickly, especially Kevin Copeland, who didn't even see the deputy who had his eyes bored out by some bugs or whatever. And yet was already, you know, pulling guns off of the wall in the police precinct, assuming everyone, you know, it was every man for himself. So I think they were caught in a tough spot with this show where they didn't want to get stuck introducing the characters. They wanted to dive right in with the mist being a supernatural thing, but in doing so they kind of skipped over a lot of the more natural reactions. But I say that on the other hand, there was that uh, scene where the deputy was taking selfies in the fog, kind of treating it very nonchalantly. Wow. This is cool. You can't see one foot in front of your face. (laughs) Well, Well, and that's kind of funny because we find ourselves disliking the characters that want to say it's fog. Yeah. <laughs> It'll pass exactly. because that would be the logical, the reasonable approach to take. Exactly. Well, especially since we're already on our guard anyway, because of this soldier played by Okezi Morrow, who's lost his memory and he has this dog. He just wakes up in the middle of the woods with this dog. Doesn't know who he is or if it's his dog even, but starts to put, pieces together and knows that there's something wrong with this mist. And because he's got that arrowhead patch on his shoulder, that's the first clue that leads us down. What turns out to be the most compelling part for me, much more compelling than the mist itself and the horrors within it is the conspiracy that's behind it, especially because there seem to be some kids in town that end up holed up in the mall because of course you mentioned the two groups, you've got the the people at the precinct, then you've got a larger chunk of the town in this mall, including Eve Copeland and her daughter. And there are some kids there that appear to be tied in with this arrowhead military base in town that it's implied has something to do with the mist. Right. 
And as you said, the the mall group, there is the one guy who knows to call Arrowhead on the radio once they track down the radio. What is Arrowhead? What part does the soldier play in it? Because as you said, he, he's wearing a patch that says that. Does it have anything to do with the mist? We certainly think it does. How long until it's discovered that Eve shot that guy that went with her? Yeah, that's a great little twist as we go into the third episode. So I'm anxious to see how that turns out because that obviously things start to break apart in any kind of Stephen King story where even the characters who start out with good intentions and might be considered the heroes take some missteps. And that's what makes it very interesting. So I do like that aspect of it. And so the cookie cutter nature of their introductions does start to soften a little bit and they become more complex as the series goes on. So I hope people give it a chance for that. And one of the other characters I really liked complexity wise from the very get go really is Mrs. Raven played by Frances Conroy of six feet under fame. She seems to understand from the very beginning that something's coming because she sees the frogs jumping out of the lake and the birds fleeing the forests like the animals know before the mist even shows up. And when she's researching some old newspapers, her husband is very indulgent, but apparently she's a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but there's a lot of mysteries here because she does discover that in 1860, and this is another Stephen King thing. It always has happened before. And that's just coming back for another round. And in May 17th, 1860 wildlife descended from the Northern woods she finds out just before the mist rolls into the library. <laughs> and, you know, as you said, I think some people might feel it's a little slow developing and you've got 10 episodes. I, I think they needed to introduce the characters in the first episode. And I love the way they introduced them because as I think we both pointed out, there's a certain air of mystery about each of them. And for me, it kind of gets down to this fundamental question about, okay, We've got a group in the mall. We've got a group that's now kind of moved from the precinct to the church. Right. Now, what do we do? Exactly. Let's, let's hold a funeral for the one guy that's died. But yeah, it's something that's very aimless as we get to know the characters. And especially we've got people who are starting out bad, including Mia, who's this addict who was brought into the jail just before the mist rolled in. And clearly she's got something going on where she's running from someone because she actually seemed to be a prisoner before she killed her captor and, and went on the run with, with a pitchfork or something like that. Right. Yeah. So something's going on with Mia, but also the fact that Mia actually saw a relative of hers in the mist. And yet the soldier who has no memory also saw this woman that she hallucinated. That's, clearly someone that's dead from her past. So these aren't necessarily hallucinations, you know, unless they're shared delusions. So it's very interesting to note what's going on with the mist. Is there something physical in there, a dangerous animal, a dangerous creature? Is there something psychological going on or perhaps a little bit of both? Right. And I guess for me, I wonder whether it's going to turn out to be something similar to the leftovers in that the show is about, the individuals and the reaction to changes brought about by the mist. I mean, we're already seeing desperation as some kill themselves by hanging. Right. And I wonder, unlike the leftovers, will we get answers at the end? Now, now 
having said that, it's clear that I have not read the novel. Right. And that's, I think, a big part of it. You'll see on our reviews on Den of Geek that the reviewer has read the books and makes some comparisons. So if you're interested in that, you can certainly go look at those reviews. And apparently there are some pretty major differences from how it's depicted, how the mist is depicted in particular. But yeah, I think it's well worth a shot. I think what's interesting is that we talk about the Stephen King tropes. We talk about how is this suffering from people maybe dismissing it because of what happened with under the dome, because how long can you sustain the mystery of the mist, right? Sure. How many seasons can you do it? But now you have this show that's actually coming out on Hulu, a Hulu original called Castle Rock, which is basically bringing a lot of the different Stephen King stories into one world so that they can explore across many different Stephen King main based storylines that he always seems to be in the, in the new England area. So whether or not that uh, might be the formula to go with for Stephen King rather than a show like the mist or under the dome, but I'm very hopeful that the mist will not end up like under the dome and people should definitely check it out just to see what happens with the storyline. Will it strengthen? Will it become more complex or will it fall apart and, and end up going down a path that they can't sustain? So I'm very interested. We're talking about Killjoys next and, and some shows like humans and travelers we're so into, and we want to make sure the listeners watch them because they're so excellent with the mist. I'm recommending it just because I want it to be a shared journey of discovery. What's going to happen with the show. (laughs) But speaking of Killjoys. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of Killjoys, Killjoys is entering its third season. By the time you guys are listening to this one episode will have aired. This show will get released on Friday. So, you know, episode two will be tonight, but what do we know coming out of season two? Yeah, I I think it's great to have a discussion of Killjoys so far into its run because it really has aged well. And I think there was one quote from season two that summed up the premise of the show. Well, episode 204, Davin says to um, Dutch, you lead, I shoot. And Johnny gives a shit, which pretty much sums up the dynamic of the lead actors on the show. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, what we know coming out of season two, and obviously, as we're talking about Killjoys, we assume you are up to date on that. So, Because you're leading off with a huge spoiler. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, Johnny's relatively despondent over the death of Potter Sims at the hand of Deliseo, but he does get his revenge at the end of the season, shooting her in the stomach, which on the one hand is so not Johnny. Oh, yeah. On the other hand, that is one of the things that I love about Killjoys, the fact that basically they are bounty hunters. So on the one hand, they are the good guys, Kind of. I mean, they certainly fall on the law side of that moral gray area, but just barely sometimes. Yeah. And like you said, Johnny, especially, I mean, I just mentioned Johnny's the one that's supposed to give a shit. He is the moral center. And I think Dutch even calls him her gravity in season two at one point. Like he's what's keeping her from going full dark. And for him to do something like kill one of the nine... That's not a small deal. Although there was a smile on her face. I'm not so sure that Delsea is gone for good. What do you think? (laughs) Well, I know. So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) But it's almost as if he wants her to survive and come after him. So I think he's just so wounded emotionally 
over Potter Sims death that I just don't think this is enough for him. And as you said, we don't know whether she's dead or not, but the other thing that we know coming out of season two is that Klein has joined forces with the Killjoys so that he can eliminate the green plasma, which is the source of the power for the level sixes. And, and of course, this is a huge turn because Klein has certainly been their enemy heretofore. And he's developed this toxin, but of course there's always a catch that they have to deliver it to the source which is a tree housed in the archive. And of course the archive is heavily guarded. And and that's certainly a great scene as well when they go to the archive. Well, I think what's really great about Klein's character is that they made it believable that he did all the things that he did to make her prepared to be able to fight Anila, her other self that we've discovered is out there somewhere. And the fact that, the tree was poisoned in the end, which was the source of the, the green toxin on Arkin. But there are many other sources out there in the J. So I love how it's basically like getting rid of one of the biggest elements of conflict from the first two seasons, but then showing us that sort of zooming back and seeing that, wait, this is just the beginning. That was one battle in a greater war. Right. And, and of course we know that Klein raised Dutch. So she's got that, love hate relationship going on with him already but then we find out that his we assume biological daughter anila is the one that controls this tree and oh yeah she looks exactly like dutch a fact that he either can't or won't explain i mean he says he doesn't know he can't i don't think he can (laughs) i don't think that he does know or did know i should say (laughs) what the explanation for that is but then, I guess, surprisingly, remarkably, he wants Dutch to kill his daughter, which then obviously sets up Hannah John Kamen to take on both roles, which <laughs> you know, we've just had a taste of her as Anila to this point. But before he sacrifices himself, Klein tells her that Anila likely retains her level six powers, because what we see is once they poison this well the level sixes lose their power. Right. Who have been sourced by the Arkin goo. Right. I mean, it's like, I, I guess this Holland, as they're now calling it, it's like now we're, instead of calling them sixes, we're calling them Holland. Right. And so this Holland force is not just confined to the quad. It's definitely out there in the greater galaxy, maybe even the universe. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that we feel like the Red 17 program has, for all intents and purposes, been terminated, Old Town's fate remains unclear. And again, that's one of the questions, how much of Old Town will we see in season three? And now that the Kildres have put an end to the Red 17 program, Johnny decides to leave because he doesn't want Davin and Dutch implicated Lucy calls Clara, the girl with the gun arm, to accompany him on his adventure. And their first step is to commandeer Klein's ship, which, of course, he doesn't need because he's dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and Fancy has joined the crew on Lucy, so he doesn't need it either. So I, I love how they set it up from the very end of season two that we were going to have Johnny off on his own with Clara and have the crew on Lucy be on a completely different mission. I guess I wasn't thinking they would hold out. I mean, I know it's only been a couple episodes, but it seems like they're taking this storyline with them separate as though it's been going on for 
months now, right? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm reviewing Killjoys for Den of Geek, you review Dark Matter for Den of Geek. And I think one of the things that I've been talking about is when you split your team, you run the risk of losing your viewers. Yeah. Because they want something to happen, whether it's the team to reunite or something with some finality to occur. And I think that's one of the problems with Dark Matter at the moment. Right. And I think that Killjoys is already on a path to correcting that, whereas Dark Matter has been sticking with that formula for a little bit too long. (laughs) Right. So as season three actually begins, Clara's nowhere to be seen. Johnny's with this girl named Ollie, who also happens to have a gun arm. And it also happens to be Clara's gun arm. Yeah. So right away, how did you get it? And where's Clara? And I was a little bit annoyed by this because, of course, it really has a lot to do with the fact that Stephanie Leonidas, who who is, she basically has me uh, wrapped around her finger and anything she's in, I will watch. And to find out that she was not available, I read in an article, is the reason why they have this new character with the gun on her arm because they couldn't keep Clara around for scheduling reasons. So I hope that she's not gone for good, but I am worried that she might be. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And, and Tommy Amber Peary, who who plays Ollie, I, I just think is wonderful. She's I mean, great, again, yeah. But we also then have the team of Dutch Davin and then Alvis Pre and Fancy are on board and it's a great team. It is. I hope we see more of them. I, I fear we won't see a lot of them. Well, like Pre never sticks around. He always ends up going back to the bar at some point. Well, somebody's got to mix the drinks, <laughs> right? And it's his bar, to right. be fair. But Clara's disappeared. Ollie has her arm, teams up with Johnny, basically because she has nowhere else to go, which is a storyline that I really love because, you know, she is so compelling. I mean, her, her screen presence is just really dynamic. And the other thing I love is that we immediately become immersed in this hack mod world of the factory. Oh, I love it. Yeah. It's very much its own separate world within the J separate from the quad and separate from Westerly and, and all the different class structure that we've had. So here we have this whole new element that we can explore. And Killjoys just does a great job of world building. Don't you think? Uh, you know what? I'm writing that in the margin now because that's a term that we, we throw around a lot. And, and I think rightly so. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this feel, I, it, it's sort of a cyberpunkish feel yeah, for certain. And, you know, right away, we want to know what is the factory, because they certainly speak the term as if it's a capital F. Right. And cyberpunk also is known for using jargon, and they immediately introduce things like specs, the special order types, and basics who are unmodified humans. I mean, you know, all this jargon really makes it feel cyberpunk and its own little subculture. Right. So what we find out about the factory is that it's this black medical clinic in the J star cluster where surgeons alter these hack mods and then sell them to wealthy individuals. So you've got people with cybernetic implants that are past what are legal limits. And the hack mods that we see are basically 
on the run. They're, they're escapees. They are trying to stay as far away from their owners and, and the people that are after them as, as they can. But the factory's a, a mobile facility, hard to find, and... They're certainly going to be pursuing (laughs) this new villain of sorts, right? Right. So, I mean, they certainly see it, again, rightly so, as a form of enslavement and in many cases just simply sold to the highest bidder. But as we said, some of them have managed to escape. They're eking out a life of their own in Rat City, which is this neutral zone at the far end of the J-Star cluster. And, you know, there's a lot of similarities between this and Old Town. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and I think this is the Old Town of this season three. Like they needed to mix it up a little bit because they did a really great job of depicting at the end of season two the reasons for what the Nine were doing to Westerly and preparing them for the invasion of the Holland and how far back the conspiracy for that invasion goes. And now we have new fish to fry. So it's going to be interesting to see how the hack mod plot line lines up, not only with what Dutch is doing with tracking down Anila, but also with what's going on in the quad, because it seems like we've kind of zoomed out, like I said, and gone beyond the small world that we started out with. Right. And Michelle Lavretta has written both episode 301 and episode 302. And as you said, we're wondering how these storylines are going to mesh. And I think once you see episode two, which I have, you really see what a finely crafted work she's put together here. And you mentioned the Hullen. And what we know about them is that they're this race of humans bonded with a parasite contained in the green plasma that gives them superhuman powers. And of course, they want to enslave the human race. So when Dutch and Davin discover those 36 cloaked Holland ships on the ground. On Arkin, right? On Arkin, then what the heck's going on? Right. It's, it's really great because the Holland, as we know it with Klein and some of the sixes, the people still retain some of their personality. So they're still autonomous to a certain extent. But the Holland invasion is not going to be so kind as what the initial people being exposed to it have experienced. They're going to be completely wiped out, almost as though the parasite takes over the host. Right. Now, we've got a few other new characters, but at this point, we don't know how long they're going to be around. I mean, we're introduced to this character played by Atticus Mitchell, Pippin, who's this young guy that Dutch and Davin actually kidnap him because he's got skills in the black market and you know, they certainly seem to imply that, that he's got some use and more or less offer him a spot on the team. So it remains to be seen how long he'll be around and how often. Maybe he's playing the techie in the absence of Johnny. <laughs> well, he's not really, but he's not really a techie. He, he's really more of a, you know, one of these guys that can get stuff that you need. Yeah. So I'll just say the idea of the techie to replace Johnny comes up in episode two. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, I, and I'll leave it at I've that. I've done a lot of that during this discussion. So I guess it's, uh, I'm thinking along the right lines in that sense. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. And again, I, this is not a spoiler, I don't think, but in episode two, there is a tremendous guest star once again that, again, as I was putting my review together for episode two, that she just screams out to become a recurring cast member. Whether she will or not, I don't know. Oh boy, that's very exciting to hear. I can't wait to see who it is. 
That's awesome. All right. Well, Killjoy's a great show. Really peaked in season two, so I can't wait to see where season three goes because it's a very different direction and, and it's going to be hard to outdo season two. And The Mist, which is a brand new show that we are also looking to see where it's headed. But another show that's been around now for only one season, but had such a great season one is Preacher. We did talk about that show, that first season in this podcast. So uh, hopefully some of you have been watching it out there. But we were honored to speak with Graham McTavish about his suddenly much more prominent role in Preacher as the Saint of Killers, also known as the Cowboy. But Preacher is currently in its second season. Episode four is about to air. So uh, if you haven't gotten caught up, as I haven't, then certainly you have plenty of time to do that. Graham McTavish also plays Dougal McKenzie on Outlander, another show that we've enjoyed. So we asked him about that as well. So take a listen now to our interview with Graham McTavish that we had earlier this month. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Michael. How are you? Pretty good. I actually am a big fan of both Preacher and Outlander, but since Preacher is coming first, let's start with that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Now, is it true, I, I gathered from the previews that we're seeing out there, that your character of the cowboy or the saint of killers, whatever you want to call him, is more prominent yeah. in season two. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. He is more prominent in season two. Yeah, I mean, really, right from the get-go with episode one, he's um, contributing to the action, that's for sure. It pretty much picks up straight off from where we left everybody in season one. And he has a singular purpose, and that is to get hold of the Genesis and thereby get reunited with his family. Uh, So he doesn't have anything personally against Jesse, uh, he is merely a means to an end, and all the poor folk that stray into my path are merely people to be uh, removed, again, without any any personal animosity, just really, they, I've got to get the job done. So, yeah. And it's an interesting character, of course, because you bring such strong character motivation, such as the mission that you just mentioned, mm. without having a whole lot of dialogue. So as an actor, what are the challenges of allowing your actions to speak volumes? Yeah, you know, it it is, it's a very interesting exercise. You know, one has to work within these constraints. He's a man who is economical with his words and his movements. So you have to retain the sort of still silence a lot of the time and, and allow that silence and stillness to be very eloquent in their own way. You know, I learned early on, uh, on stage that the stillness, uh, catches the eye and it, it is very compelling. You know, I move, I move at a measured pace in the show because that's, that's more frightening, I think, than seeing me run down the street. There's something much more menacing about a man that can take his time coming after you than somebody who needs to rush. So all of those things are, are part of, of how I characterize it. And, um, yeah, you just have to trust how they're filming it and realize that, um, if you were to suddenly place massive pages of dialogue in the hands of, of a character like the Saint of Killers, it just wouldn't fit properly. You know, he's not a man given to enormous reflection. And in the tradition of, you know, some of the Clint Eastwood's characters that I know have inspired Garth in writing Preacher originally as a comic book, and, you know, thinking back to even someone like Lee Marvin uh, in Point Blank, 
that same sort of relentless, remorseless pursuit is very traditional in, in television and film. Well, I actually think that despite all of that and ha- having so little to go on other than this menacing and sometimes scary presence, mm. you do actually have some sympathy sometimes for the Saint of Killers. And I'm specifically thinking in season yep. one where he actually lets the Chinese singer finish in the bar yeah. before killing him. Why do you think that is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's that situation. In that situation, I think there's an, ele- an element of cruelty, to be honest. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, he wants to let him believe that he's going to live. And then, no, you're not. At the same time, though, certainly in season two, and it's true in season one, I mean, he did feel sympathy for him because of, because of what happened to his family. Uh, he was a man that was trying to do good. You know, he went back to help people. And where did it get him? And in season two, I mean, there are definitely a couple of instances, even, you know, uh, as early as episode two, when I kill Fiore. It's an act of kindness in the end. I'm releasing him from his own personal hell on earth something that I'm all too familiar with. And, and as the season progresses, I think you see me in, certainly in relationship to, to Dominic's character, that you're unsure who the bad guy is in those scenes as the season goes on, because I think that's one of the great strengths of the show is that it, it doesn't give you easy answers. It's not neat. It doesn't follow the sort of traditions of a procedural drama, for instance, where you know, something bad happens, good people come along to solve it and resolve it, and then at the end, good triumphs and evil is, is vanquished. This show is about, I think, the inner struggle that humanity has with the good and, and bad sides of our natures. And, uh, I mean, this, you know, it's stylized and it's witty and um, sometimes very extreme. I mean, there are external manifestations of of heaven and hell and Satan and God. But ultimately, it's a, it's a very old story of, of people, Jesse, Cassidy, Tulip, me, all struggling with things that are inside us. Is there any element of adjustment period that the cowboy has to go through having spent time in Ratwater and now being in this more modern age? Mm. Does that come into play at all, where he's a fish out of water? How he relates to the modern age, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he, yeah, he's um. There are there are a couple of moments, but you know, this is not a man who's going to be uh, pausing to take in the scenery and and discuss the you know the inventions of the twentieth century. It's yeah, that's not that's not going to be the case. He's not going to get into big conversations about the invention of television <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's um, everything is seen through the prism, of, of, in, in his case, of getting hold of, of Genesis. So he's unencumbered by those things. It's not, uh, he relates to them only in as much as sometimes he might destroy them or, um, you know, push past them. You know, in, in episode two, I think it's episode two, you know, I get hit by a truck. You know, I don't pause to ask about the internal combustion engine. <laughs> 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 I, just, I just move it out of the way and get on with my job. And that's one of the great things about the saint. It's, it's the, the simplicity of his purpose in many ways, that in some ways is, is why I think we find his character so compelling, is that he's not like us who go through our lives compromising and having to 
accommodate other things, other people, other views. He has none of that, none of those issues. So, you know, he's the saint of killers. He's not the saint of conversation or <laughs> yoga or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because you also act in another show that has someone displaced in time, and that's Outlander. Yeah. Where you play yeah. Dougal McKenzie. Now, this is another person who's kind of stoic in their loyalty. Yeah. Uh, why do you feel like Dougal is so loyal to his brother? I mean, I haven't actually read all of the Outlander novels, but how much of that is informed by the character that has written? Why am I so loyal to my brother, did you say? Well, I guess just because you're being pushed so hard to yeah. become king yourself, and clearly you could dominate him. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, in the case of Dougal, he's, um, he's an interesting conundrum in a lot of ways. You know, he's, he's very uncomplicated in some respects, that he is very loyal. He, he also, like the saint, has a, has a singular purpose, which in his case is the restoration of the Stuart monarchy. But he's also, you know, a great manipulator. He's very cunning and he plays all the angles and thinks ahead. But it's his temper and his impatience that are his Achilles heel. And his relationship with his brother is very, yeah, it's very complicated. He would do anything for his brother and he does as he goes at great lengths to remind him. But at the same time, he parts ways with him uh, on the, the Jacobite cause. But that's, you know, I think that's a very fair reflection of a lot of families um, that you'll do anything from your fa- for your family, but they're also the people that will push your buttons more than anybody. So, yeah, he's um, he's another not easily compartmentalized character. He's a lot more complicated than perhaps even, you know, Jamie's character, who is, who is much more a straight arrow, much more, I think, you know, simple in, in his worldview compared with, with someone like Dougal. Well, we're certainly looking forward to that. That's uh, not coming to us until September of 2017, uh, yeah, season right. three of Outlander. But at least we have Preacher to look forward to, which premieres shortly after this interview is being recorded. Yep. So thank you so much, Mr. McTavish, for speaking with us today. Absolutely. It's always my pleasure. All right. Some great insights uh, by Mr. McTavish. He was uh, very easy to transcribe for the written interview, Dave, because he's just such a well-spoken man. <laughs> it's like, uh, unlike us Americans, you know, they can put a sentence together very well over there in the UK. <laughs> yeah. And our schedules don't always mesh so that both of us are able to be present for the interview. So I'm sorry I missed him. I'm a huge Outlander fan, but uh, you asked him everything I would have asked. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right, so we hope you enjoyed this great discussion and our interview segment as well. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media or on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in August, we're going to discuss Salvation, the latest CBS offering from Liz Krueger and Craig Shapiro, and the NBC supernatural drama Midnight Texas. But... In the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know on social media what you'd like us to talk about. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.